Welcome to Out of the Ordinary, the show that helps you grow a daily life that matters. I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And I'm Christy Purifoy. And this episode, well, it's like a birthday party or maybe a baby shower. (laughs) Either way, it's a party that feels just right for Easter. I know. Who knew that a conversation between our neighbors about our broken down fence would teach me so much about my sometimes broken down and neglected soul. Get comfy, friends. Here we go. Happy Easter, listeners. Uh, He has risen. He has risen indeed. And we are back here um, on the podcast. And I just want to say a thank you for um, everyone who received last week's Holy Week episode, my first Really, yeah, my first sort of reading aloud from the new book, A Home in Bloom, and uh, it was so good to hear from some of you who appreciated that. Thank you. If you didn't get a chance to listen, because I know um, many were traveling last week or just busy with their families and church communities, um, no need to listen now, but after this conversation, I hope you'll go back and enjoy. I love reading aloud. I love reading for people. And that's what last week's um, episode was all about. So happy Easter. Happy Easter, Lisa Joe. I know you too. I'm so glad we got to be at Maplehurst in person. Mm-hmm. It's been a while, but our whole family was there for the Saturday before Easter Sunday. And that always feels like its own kind of resurrection. <laughs> Getting to be together <laughs> yeah. with old friends in person with all of our giant teenagers. That's right. They're just more and more giant. It's wild. We hardly fit at Maplehurst anymore. (laughs) I know. I know. And so much change at Maplehurst too. So much going on there and new life starting out. And it's just good to be back in community. I think it's what we're built for. And um, it reminded me of a conversation I was having with my nearly teenage daughter. So our daughters are the two youngest of the squad. Mine is 12 and is Elsa turning 11 Right. She's 10 now. So yeah, yeah, like 10 and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So Zoe just turned 12. Also 10 and a half turning 11. They're the babies. They're about to be teens. So then we'll have everybody will be out of the baby years. Like that's so crazy. Um, But Zoe for her 12th birthday, we did a lot of things. And one of them was we went out to dinner and I just have to say I was very proud of myself. This is not even a humble brag. It's just like a proud brag because I had thought like, okay, how do I make this an intentional moment? And I just literally Googled like questions to ask on your birthday. And there are many out there, but I pulled up these 10 questions. And so when we sat down to dinner, I said to her, okay, I have these 10 different questions that they that are, I thought we could go through to reflect on your birthday. And she was very into it, very. And so it was a really great tool for parents who know what it's like to feel like you're pulling teeth, trying to get like a tween to talk to you about themselves. And it is weird because I'm used to Zoe being the one who just like, I could never get her to stop talking. (laughs) And now we're in this weird place where it takes a lot more effort for me to get her to engage in conversation. Anyway, we worked through these questions. It was wonderful. But one of them really came out of this conversation then started about faith and about church, church community. And she said to me, like, an interesting thing she said about how sometimes she thinks church can be a bad idea because if it's really boring, it feels like you are then connecting God with the feeling of being boring, is how she described it, which Mm -hmm. valid, right? Like we've Mm -hmm, all had mm -hmm. boring church days. And so she said she doesn't know why she has to go to church because it's just, it is, it is negatively affecting her relationship with God (laughs) to be at church because it's so boring. 
Sure. Which was, yeah, yeah. To which I was able to respond, oh, that's so interesting. Well, I think that's because you misunderstand what church is. So church isn't designed to make you feel entertained. Church is not about you. Church is reminding us we are part of the family of God. So in the same way that your own family can be gross. We had a whole section of our conversation where she shared how gross <laughs> our family can be sometimes because she has teenage brothers. In the same way, your family can be gross or boring or irritating. You don't get to opt out because they're your family. And so part of growing up is growing as part of a family. And it teaches you how to be in relationship with others, how to be less selfish, how to care about others more than yourself, um, how to take an interest in other people. And I said, so church is the same. You are sitting there in the pews with the family of God, and some of them will sing off key or annoy you or ask you a question you didn't feel like answering or some days you're going to learn great things from the sermon some days you won't but guess what the person sitting next to you they might learn something amazing from the sermon so being part of a church family reminds us we're not the center of the whole story we are part of the story and part of the story is us growing alongside others and serving others and getting older getting irritated getting over it <laughs> and she looked at me and she was like, wow, that really helps. Like, that helps a Aww. lot. And I was like, good. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> anyway, that's a long way of saying I've been thinking about community again recently and how a lot of what we try to manage in a world that's heavy and hard and the news headlines are shocking and terrifying and sad Um, especially in light of recent school shootings again, I was really struck by your essay you read last week on resurrection, there's a line where you say this, you wrote, hopelessness is a dreary experience. And it, that could have been the end of the sentence, right? It could have been period, because yes, indeed it is. But what struck me is how you went on and you said, but it doesn't ask much of us. And I sat with that for a long time because I thought, you're right, like hopelessness is something I can just sit in and wallow. Like it doesn't ask anything of me. And resurrection, on the other hand, requires something of us. Maybe why it's harder to reach for, you go on to say, perhaps it isn't even possible to practice resurrection on our own. Perhaps it is a way of living that works best when we are living from within relationships and community. Man, was I struck by that because, I mean, that's what all the psychology says, that if you want to overcome shame or despair or loneliness or sadness, you need to bring it into community. Like, community is the place where we bring those pains and then community by really God's divine presence, I feel like heals us of a lot of the things that when we're alone, we just wallow and they become heavier. Community helps those things become lighter. So that is why I, a not gardener, always read <laughs> your books because you write them for everyone. Like you use the garden as a metaphor, as, as God does, but it's a literal thing as it is in God's kingdom. But it teaches me. And I think I was just so struck by that idea of hopelessness that is something experienced alone versus resurrection, something experienced in community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's funny when you, I think you shared maybe that particular quotation on your Instagram yeah. a while, you know, recently, a couple weeks ago. And um, 
when I read it, I thought, oh, did I write that? (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes we have that experience where, you know, our own words, our own, the thing we crafted comes back and we think, oh, yeah, okay, (laughs) I needed that. Um, But it is something I've experienced in the garden because so much of my, like when I'm feeling hopeless about, you know, this place or how I'm caring for it or how I'm not caring for it very well, like that is an utterly solitary experience. It's all in my head, you know, it, and and um, it's bad self-talk and it's, you know, that's mm-hmm. shame spiral. And sure. who you, you know, you want to talk about people's, how they feel about gardens, like shame is right there. People feel so much shame about having killed plants or what their yard looks like or, you know, on and on. Um, but that is such a solitary thing. And um, when that gets turned around, so often it's because I get out there with my body, I start making changes, and I invite other people into it. So in the context of this particular essay in the book, it was, you know, changes that needed to happen in the garden that I couldn't do on my own. Um, and it meant everything that Jonathan um, was willing to come alongside and do some hard work, even though, and this is the thing that gardening just hammers home to me again and again, like there are no guarantees. There are even fewer guarantees, I feel like, in gardening because you might put in the time, you might put in the effort, you might spend some money on plants and they might die. It might not work. It might, you know, it might be a bad idea. It may be wasted effort. Like that is always the the thinking in my head, the sort of calculating I'm doing. But there's something about practicing resurrection. There's something about this Easter season when we really lean into that, that I think the invitation is go for it, dive in, just run, you know, leap, (laughs) leap of faith, like stop overthinking, stop weighing the risks, stop calculating and just go for it. And, um, you know, that's the invitation of the garden year round. And I think that's the invitation of life. Like if we want abundant life, if we want to cultivate life, then it requires that at some point we just go for it. And, um, and yeah, I wouldn't have a garden. There wouldn't be life here if I weren't, um, with the help of Jonathan, with the encouragement of others in this community of place, because places are, They're so connected to community, right? Because places where we interact with others, even if we live alone, we invite others in, neighbors can see us, you know, it's so communal, our experience of place. Um, So even if I'm talking about gardening on my own, it's, there's this thread of connection to, um, to something I'll experience with others. So, yeah, I think as well that like practicing resurrection Maybe it can't happen on our own. Maybe it's not such a solitary thing because it can't just happen in our heads. Like it has to be this reaching out, this connecting, this moving closer to others. Uh, maybe it has to be that. And look, friends, I'm, I am the introvert of introverts saying that. <laughs> so if I am saying it, <laughs> there might be something in it. I know. Yeah. Well, Peter and I were chuckling because, I mean, listeners, if you've listened for a long time, you always hear me talk about how our our garden, our yard, and we live on about an acre. 
Um, so it's bigger than like the average yard would be, which means it's harder to maintain. So I often talk yeah. about how our yard is a direct reflection of our mental health, Pete and I. So like what it's just dregs <laughs> of leaves and rakes just left haphazardly and soccer balls that have got eaten away by weather, you know, like Pete and Lisa Joe are not doing so good. Like they're hunkered down <laughs> inside trying to get work done. But we were laughing so hard. I was telling Christy the story because we live in a neighborhood of people who work with their hands. So we like our neighbors are amazing. They've helped us on our property a lot. There are contractors. There are uh, guys who do HVAC. There are guys who do power washing on decks, painting, construction. And Peter said to me the other day, the saddest thing, he's like, Lisa Joe, I just feel like I have no way to contribute to our neighborhood because... You know, if we have something that the fence comes down, George can help us fix it. Like the deck needs to be power washed. John, Dave from down the road is going to come help us do that. Like Peter's like, what can I do? You know, he's a political scientist. Can I sit down and offer to tutor them about government or policy making? <laughs> I'm like, my degree is English and editing. You know, like, do they want to give me an essay I could read over for them? <laughs> like, I just feel like we have nothing yeah. to bring to the community. Yeah. And so... I, I think Christy helped me so much the other day because one of the things that's interesting is the people who lived in this house before us seven years ago were sort of the patriarchs of this little community that's not even a real like on the map subdivision. It's gravel roads. It used to be a farm. It got subdivided between families. There are houses at all kinds of janky angles from one another. No real property lines. It's very ad hoc. Um <laughs> And But they all know each other, which means they have had all kinds of feuds and frustrations that have run deep over the years, so much so that certain neighbors have tried to pull down other neighbors' fences. I mean, it's gotten heated. So Pete and I move in, the poly scientist, the political scientist and the English major, and I told Pete, you know, the one gift that we can give, though, is like we are the one set of neighbors who are not going to pick fights with you. Like, And Christy said, <laughs> yes, you guys are bringing your peacemaking to that neighborhood. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. And so we are the ones that they can come to always and be like, could you do this or could you change that? Or could we dump all this gravel on your driveway that we need for our property? And we're always the ones who are like, sure, like whatever you need. Can we park our janky boat outside your yard for four months? Go ahead. <laughs> like, we're fine. <laughs> oh, I love so, it. <laughs> but talking about community, our yard has really struggled the last four years. It's so big that as much as Pete tries to maintain it with our sons, it has just felt insurmountable. Like, you need community. You need people to help you. And sometimes you need people to help you realize how bad it is. And so a portion of our our fence had fallen down and our neighbors drive right by one on the one side and gets to look in at the despair that lives here. <laughs> and uh, he came over to ask very kindly to Peter, like, when were we going to fix the fence? And um, have we thought about repairing it? You know, <laughs> But he is he's also like a guy who works with his hands. And so Peter then tried to share with him just like what the last few years have been like and his own struggle um, and feeling lost and overwhelmed. And he used all these sort of <laughs> words to describe the state of his own soul. And this man responded, um, yeah, I told you you needed to shore up that fence. And so... <laughs> 
we realized like sometimes you just need people who are like, you got to take care of that fence, man, or and then lend you like their John Deere tractor when yours is broken down or their leaf blower. And uh, and so this really galvanized Peter and we had reached out to a fence repair company and to a yard services company who came and in the space of two days took care of all the leaves from the last year that have just just so many of them piled up on fence lines and flower beds, no matter how much we try to keep them under control. We have all these hundred year old trees, so many leaves. They came in with, you know, three guys, blowers, and it's all cleared out. And I walked out this morning and looked at it and just thought, oh, wow, like there's the garden again. <laughs> like, Look at it. But we couldn't, we literally could not do it on our own. Like we, we couldn't have, we needed help. And we needed money to be able to pay for the help. So it's been several years since we could afford to pay for help. But man, how many times is it where we just need help? Like there's so much mess or sadness or chaos, but you have to be able to like invite people in. Pete had to call up the guy who came over and walked our whole property. And it felt so humiliating to me as he like walked around with his clipboard and like wrote down like all of the despair. But it was so cool. He like divided it into stages and told Pete, okay, it's not a problem. Like we'll do the leaf cleanup first and then we'll do mulch and then we can take care of reseeding your poor dead yard. And like he was able to just help us, first of all, not feel ashamed Tell us he could do it. He could handle it. He has people who can come in. And then inviting people in just felt so miraculous yesterday. Like I could continue working on big deadlines and Pete had to travel out of our town for work. And yet there were people like helping us. And all I could think is, yes, Christy, like resurrection has to happen in community. Like you need help. Man, that just applies to all the things, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really appropriate and right that you're connecting, you and Peter, even if the, the neighbor didn't quite get it and just said, yeah, you need to shore up that fence. Um, you're connecting your, out, your space, you know, this one acre that is your responsibility with the state of your soul. And I bet there are people listening who will think, well, you just need to get over that. <laughs> you just need to right? not feel that. Um, that doesn't make sense. But you're, I think you're feeling something true. And that also is what this book is about because, um, we do have this, this, I'm going to call it like this spiritual connection to the places where we live and the place, the ground under our feet. Um, I really believe that we were all made for Eden. I mean, that's the story scripture tells. And I think somehow we've, I don't know, we've turned that into um, something that's maybe true metaphorically, true in our heads and, and forgotten that no, actually when God created these bodies, he created them to live in a garden, a garden of trees, actually. So there's something about where you're living that is good and is connected to um, the God who made you. You know, somehow this place is um, a gift from God, but because it's <laughs> because it there is this deep connection, it's not always going to be this sort of easy, effortless connection, right? You know, we are living, you know, we're we're living in this mortal life. We're living in the valley of the shadow of death. Um, here we are on earth, right? And um, and so it that you know, there's a lot of angst that comes with it. And I guess, yeah, I guess I wrote this book on the one hand to acknowledge that, to say, look, if you're feeling shame or you're feeling maybe like something's missing. 
uh, I often remember this story. Um, I don't know if I've shared it on the pod- podcast before, but this friend of our family who loves trees and is a tree grower, like a tree farmer, he told me once about being on a golf course um, because he loves to golf and seeing um, is one of those golf courses that has all these really fancy houses around it. And so he's golfing and he sees this super fancy house. And of course, so now he's kind of seeing into the back garden backyard of the house and he says this man comes out of the house and he's clearly like a successful businessman he's got the suit on maybe he's prepared it's more you know he's preparing to leave for work or maybe he's just come home from work and um you know fancy house fancy guy and he walks out and then my friend the golfer realizes that in this vast green lawn this backyard of this mansion basically there is one little raised bed with a tomato plant in it. And this business, I know, this business guy comes out with a watering can (laughs) and waters his little tomato. (laughs) So beautiful. (laughs) So uh, our friend, Don Eaton, he says that story to, to say like, look, we all need some kind of connection with growing things, with life, with the ground under our feet. We all do. Um, And yet, I think in our culture, in our country, we've decided, no, no, gardening is a hobby. Some people are good at it. Some people have green thumbs. Other people should just step away from the plants. They're not good at it. They kill things. And that is such a lie. It is a lie. And I think it is spiritually damaging. And so when your sweet Peter is looking at the fence and looking at the leaves and feeling like it is somehow a reflection of his soul in a not at all condemning way, I say, yes, it is. But the hope for that is not to wallow in that shame. It's to do exactly, you know, what you did. Either, hey, take your time. We Sometimes our soul is in such a state that we just cannot shore up the fence. (laughs) And there is grace for that. There is mercy. And then when we are able, we reach out. Even just in sharing with the neighbor, you know, just unburdening his soul. Like maybe it wasn't really received well, but just in doing that, I think that is so beautiful. Right. I think it's vulnerable. And I think what's really beautiful is when I watch them standing in the yard, like I know they are speaking almost two different languages. They come from such different worlds. But I just watch grace happening in that moment. Yeah. Like they're both <laughs> trying to love well. And this is a neighbor who I know has had massive conflict with other neighbors. But there he is, so patient, so gentle with my Peter, because I know there's something in Peter that that our neighbor is, is experiencing. Like he doesn't know to describe what it is, but he is receiving something from Pete. And I would describe that as like the aroma of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> like he's he's standing in a place with somebody who's being vulnerable and sharing a struggle in such a way that the neighbor is not critical. He's so gentle and he's, but he's able to help Peter see like, but there's something that needs to be done. Like, let me help mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm, I've mm-hmm, been thinking about mm-hmm. this a lot. Um, your book is kind of dovetailing with, I've been reading John Ortberg's book called Soul Keeping. And I've never read it before. Have you read it, Christy? I haven't. No. I. It's funny. I feel like, you know, there are comedy sketches like this. Like every single sentence, I'm just hitting the highlight button. Like I'm I'm literally (laughs) highlighting the whole page. And I'm like, wait, the whole page is yellow. (laughs) Like what's happening? (laughs) Um, It's so good that I just ordered a paper copy of it because I want Pete to read it too. But 
What's really powerful is he talks about the soul in a way I've never really paused to think about it. I think I've danced around the edges of it in conversations like this. But I think, you know, here I am about to turn 50 next year and I'm finally (laughs) paying attention to the soul of me. And Ortberg says this, he says, The point is that what Jesus said is true. Gaining the outside world doesn't help you if your inside world collapses. Look at me and look at you. The neglected soul doesn't go away. It goes awry. And then he says such an interesting thing. He says, our world has replaced the word soul with the word self. And they are not the same. The more we focus on ourselves, the more we would ne- the more we neglect our souls. And we live in a culture that's really into self-care right now. And I think it's because there's a part of us that recognizes we are hurt. There's something wrong or missing and we're looking for comfort, but we're going about it in a way that isn't actually beneficial. And he says here, ironically, the more obsessed we are with ourselves, the more we neglect our souls. All of our language reflect this. If you're empty, you need to fulfill yourself. If you're stressed, learn how to take care of yourself. If you're on a job interview, you have to believe in yourself. If you're at the tattoo parlor, you must learn to express yourself. If someone dares to criticize you, you have to love yourself. If you're not getting your own way, you have to stand up for yourself. What should you do on a date? You should be yourself. And then he asks this question, but what if yourself is a train wreck? What do you do then? (laughs) And he says, you are only able to live in a way that really helps and loves others when your soul feels its worth. And he says at the end, I'll end with this, I'm reminded that when I'm alone, when I'm in nature, he talks about going out to the ocean. He says, I'm reminded then that God loves me, that there is something about life that is infinitely deeper than all the expectations and roles and performance stuff of my outer life. It changes my body. I can feel it and my soul feels its worth. I think what I'm trying to say here is there's something about being in your garden, Christy, or planting tomatoes (laughs) that helps the soul feel its worth, where it's not about the self, it's about the soul, because it's about participating in something that's outside of self and outside of our control. Right. Gardener friend, do you agree? I totally agree. And we've been talking about community, which is another way of talking about connection, like connecting with others. And, um, that is one reason why it's this connection issue. One reason why I think um, it breaks my heart a little to think of the number of people who maybe feel disconnected from the natural world and disconnected even from their own back garden. And I think, uh, you know, I'm going to be bold to say that I sometimes imagine it might even break God's heart that here He has created this abundant, bountiful world for us. You know, in the beginning, Scripture says He He made it, He created it, it's His artwork, and He called it good. You know, the trees, the flowers, the grasses, the animals, the birds, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars, it's so good. And when we are content, of course we're not really, but when we think we're content to just wall ourselves off from that and um, live in our entirely little man-made, human-made world of vinyl and concrete and asphalt, um, 
you know, which may be where we find ourselves. But when we don't do anything to bring life in, when we forget even to notice what God has made and to live a little bit more closely with it, I think God must just look at us like children who, you know, He's offering these gifts and we're just not even seeing it, you know? It's as if you had showed up for Zoe's birthday dinner and had a big old box with a huge bow on it, and she'd like ignored it. Right. <laughs> Didn't right. even look at it. I was like, oh, wait, what? You know? And I think that's what that's what we do. And I understand why, you know, it's cultural there's effort involved. We've already talked about that. Um, and so what I hope to offer in this book is just like a, an invitation into just the simplicity of it, because I really think it can be simple. It does not have to be, um, it doesn't have to look like your one acre. It doesn't have to look like my acres. You know, it might just be, a, you know, a, some potted herbs on your kitchen counter. Like it can be very simple. So one of the, th- the funny discussions actually, when we were, I was making this, writing this book and then working with the the publisher to sort of design it and get the titles right, is that, you know, so I have these little essays, these stories, um, I have plants I write about and recommend, but then there are these little, little sections that we called projects, but we went back and forth on the word projects because in my mind, projects sounds like like if I hear someone say, "Oh, I've got some projects I'm going to recommend to you," I, know, it's I, I like get homework. Right, I start to feel a little tired. Like, oh right. dear, I have enough on my plate. I don't need any more projects. And so, if the garden, if connecting with, if not only connecting with nature, but like participating in it, cultivating in it, which is what gardening is, it's sort of like, um, you know, we can connect with nature by going for a walk in the woods, right? But what I'm talking about is actually taking responsibility for the sort of portion of nature that's been given to us, like, and developing a relationship with it. So, I'm talking about a, a kind of relationship of care with our place, right? That's what gardening is. So, projects to me sound like makes it sound like, oh, now I've got to have extra work in my life. Like now, if I want to connect with and care for my place, it's going to come with this super long chore list. So I was hesitant to call them projects, but I will just explain, even though we used that term, because, you know, there's some nice alliteration with plants, plants and projects. (laughs) When I use the word projects, I am talking about the simplest kind of rhythms that just help us notice what's out there and bring it inside. (laughs) Very simple. So, you know, when I talk about like baking something with something from the garden or making a wreath at Christmas time, like imagine the easiest way to do that. And that is, that is what I'm talking about. Like the simplest way so that, so that living according to these garden rhythms can actually become like a, a rest peaceful experience and not like, yeah, not just a, more that we have to right. do. I, I have two of them bookmarked. I'm definitely doing it with Zoe. Like dandelion cupcakes. I did not know that dandelions are springtime weed and a superfood. What? <laughs> and they can feed us too. And it's like the most beautiful picture of how to make dandelion cupcakes. They're so pretty. We're going to do that. And the other one I have bookmarked is the floral ice cubes. Oh, which yeah, yeah. That so was fun. so beautiful with flowers frozen into the cubes. I just love that. I love that idea of when you talk about bringing the garden in, it's not just the flowers to put in a vase. It's actually like 
edible, like eat and drink, you know, it sort of feels like Alice in Wonderland, eat this, drink this, you know, yes, it has that sort of feeling see, like there's right. magic here waiting for you. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Exactly. There is magic here waiting for you. And I just want, I want more people to experience that, to experience the magic of it. It's why I talked about for enchanted seasons with flowers. I mean, when I use a word like enchanted, enchantment, what I'm talking about is coming alive. And I think our places, because they're made by God, and, um, you know, Scripture testifies to this, you know, the trees are clapping their hands, the rocks are crying out. I think an enchanted place um, under our care is just a place that has spiritual presence, that is alive, where we are tending that life. And we are um, not ignoring it, but we're calling it out. We're bringing it inside. So an enchanted home, an enchanted place is um, a place that has this kind of, you know, it, just this this living, this living spirit, which is connected to the God who made us and made every place. And it's fun. It's fun yeah, and easy. And, but it's, <laughs> like, I think your book is like a guidebook for those of us who are trying to figure that out. So you guys, the book we keep talking about is Christie's A Home in Bloom for Enchanted Seasons with Flowers. And I'm just peeking at the table of contents. I think that's helpful to share with the listeners too. She divides it into the four seasons. So autumn comes first and she talks about the projects of planting bulbs and containers or making a cake that is covered in flowers. And she also shares like what to plant during the seasons and projects like drying hydrangeas. And then in winter, I love this. She talks about bringing in the greens. So about wreaths and winter berries and projects like forcing amaryllis and paper white narcissus bulbs to come into bloom in your kitchen and planting romantic red flowers for cutting and in spring, she talks about the hungry season and salad art, forcing spring branches into bloom and how to, this is where the dandelion cupcakes live and <laughs> growing your own bouquets. And I love that you have a chapter called Cut Your Darlings because yeah. those of us who are in the writerly industry know this phrase to kill your darlings, which just means like phrases or paragraphs you love. They're your darling, but they're not working well in your book. You need to get rid of them. But Christy is inviting us to cut our darlings so that I think they can <laughs> bloom more. It's so beautiful. And then summer, where she talks about floral ice cubes and shade trees and growing a living centerpiece and how to cool your house down with the flowers you bring in. But I love the essay in the summer chapter. Of course, that's where it lives because Christy is very honest about how summer is her least favorite season in the garden because mm -hmm. it's so overwhelming. She actually has an essay in case you worry that Christy's garden is so easy and she can just make it all work. <laughs> she has an entire essay called This Is Not My Happy Place. <laughs> so hard. This is on page 181 if you're in the book. I just have to read from it. She says, I cannot call the garden my happy place because I'm not always happy in my garden. <laughs> I am happy when the roses first bloom in early summer, but I am not happy when black spot turns their glossy green leaves to sickly yellow. I am happy on the first really warm and sunny day in spring, but I am not happy when the humidity soars in summer. I am unhappy when too little rain leaves my mop head hydrangeas wilted and unhappy when too much rain flattens the dahlias I haven't yet staked. I am happy pulling weeds for a while and unhappy when my weeding fails to make a dent in the soft green onslaught of Japanese stilt grass. That made me feel so seen, Christy. I know, you have it too. I but know. this is the best <laughs> sentence. She says, gardening is a lot like parenting. I feel tired, overwhelmed, and yes, 
unhappy for a great deal of it, but I wouldn't trade my garden for the world. Oh, that's so affirming. I feel so seen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's an intense place, a garden, I tell you. Now, you know, mine is maybe a little especially intense because it's, you know, it's large, but but it, it's true for all of us. And I think maybe just saying that from the get-go so that you don't imagine that if it gets hard or you don't like it for a while <laughs> or you right. just want to go inside and read a book instead, that you're doing it wrong. You're not doing it wrong. That's how that that is what it is. And we just we move through those cycles. It's a lot like life. Um, but you're not doing it wrong. And the rest of us, aren't, the real gardeners aren't out there loving every minute and happy <laughs> and, you know, um, I- existing in weed free paradise. We're not. We're not. And yet we still find something so worthwhile, so vital, so so life-giving that we persist. And um, and so you're, you're invited to, to join that kind of crazy journey as well. And there will be moments of such bliss that they will keep you going through, you know, those right. moments of despair. <laughs> right. And I, out of soul tending, there's a quote that I just think applies so perfectly here. John Ortberg is interviewing Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard has this wonderful line where he says, what matters is not the accomplishments you achieve. So I think it's like not about how big your garden is or how beautiful or your job, your career, your kids. But in this case, we're talking about gardens. What matters is not the accomplishments you achieve. What matters is the person that you become. And I think we are called to be becoming all the time in the kingdom of God. And gardening is one of those places where we become, I think. it's. I think there are many activities that God has put in his creation that help us become in our souls. And I, I'm just here to testify, I think gardening is one of them. Yeah, it is. It is. And I tell you, Lisa Joe, here, um, Easter season has just begun. Spring is unfolding. I, even though I know the heat and the humidity are coming, I am so excited to spend the next few months in my garden. It's been a long winter, but here we go. You know, the seasons are unfolding. The garden is unfolding. And um, with like every bit of me, I am just eager, eager um, to be in my garden, working in it, resting in it, inviting others into it. Um, I'm so ready to spend a summer in the garden. I think we need to end with Christy's last paragraph here in the book oh, that yes. I think is a great, a great word to end on. I'm going to read it. It's on page 197. And, and she's talking about this word enchanted, which you've talked about for years here on the podcast that I think is so interesting. She says here, did you know the word enchanted holds the Latin word cantare inside of it? My mom would be so proud of you, Christy. And I've often talked about how Christy reminds me of my mom who took Latin and could teach it and was always telling me like the meaning of things from the Latin. But she says that small seed of a Latin word means to sing. There are those with a natural talent for music, but I am not one of them. I suppose that there are those with a natural talent for horticulture, but I am not sure I am one of them either. But it hardly matters when the abundance of life, not the stasis of perfection, is the goal. The earth is singing a beautiful song. Why don't we open our doors and sing along? Why am I choked up like reading that? It's so, it's so beautiful. <laughs> and I think it's affirming that like stasis is not God's 
resting point. He's not a God that is still. He's a God who's active and creating. And so it's the abundance is also a polite way of sometimes saying the overgrowth, the chaos, mm-hmm. like all of it. Like all of it sings to a God who is constantly making all things new. So if you haven't picked it up yet, man, I just cannot recommend to you enough this beautiful book. It's it's just a beautiful book too. It's hardcover. It has a ribbon spine, a home in bloom, and the photographs are astonishing. All of them from Christie's own garden, all of them taken by Christie, all of them showing you what it looks like to bring like even weeds inside and make them look beautiful <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you, Lisa Joe. It's um, it's good to celebrate with you this with you. It's yeah. like yeah, the arrival of a new book baby. It's a yes. kind of birthday. It's so beautiful, and it's the right time of year for all of us to lean in to the essays, um, the invitation, the flowers. Um, without overwhelm, I think it just feels like invitation. Mm. <laughs>